Hi, and welcome to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in pediatrics. I'm Dr. Krista Roncone. I'm a pediatrics resident at the University of Virginia. Today, we'll be reviewing what you need to know before your first day on the wards. So without further ado, welcome to the wards. The inpatient wards are one of my favorite places in the hospital, and whether or not you're interested in pediatrics, the inpatient setting offers such an in-depth and immersive learning experience that I'm absolutely positive it will be a huge milestone for you in your pediatric experience and a core memory of your third year of medical school. In this episode, we'll go over four major topics. First, we'll talk about what to do or know before the rotation. In other words, a few quick tips to make sure you hit the ground running. Next, we'll go over how to pre-round on a patient. After that, we'll talk about how to present a patient. And finally, we'll wrap up by going over some pointers about how to be an effective team player before the rotation. First, let's talk about some tips before you even begin your wards experience. Reach out to your team. I always think that it is important to have an idea of who you'll be working with ahead of time, and sometimes sending an email to the residents on service ahead of time can make sure you receive the most up-to-date information about where and when you should report. Also, make sure you understand what first-day expectations are. Most rotations will likely mean listening to rounds on the first day, but it's possible that others may expect you to come in ready to round on a patient. Clarifying this ahead of time will lead to less stress on your first day. You should also try to peruse the patient list if this is something you might have access to. While not an expectation, gaining an understanding of the list of patients ahead of time can help you know what topics it might be helpful to start your studying with or to review the night before. Also, try to identify what study materials and resources will help you excel. It's a good idea to ask your clerkship directors, attendings, or residents on service if there are any key resources they would recommend for this part of the rotation. Having this information handy ahead of time can help streamline your studying. Lastly, but most importantly, come ready to learn and have fun. Being an enthusiastic learner will always lead to other more senior members of the team wanting to help you learn and grow, and you're more likely to be delegated more responsibility and privilege if you demonstrate that you're a team player that is prepared and ready to work hard. All right, now let's talk about how to pre-round. The specifics of pre-rounding can look different for every team and hospital setup, but in general, this means coming in well ahead of rounds to collect information on overnight events, vitals, labs, and doing a brief interview and physical exam on your patient. For overnight or interval events, make sure to touch base with your resident on overnight events from the night team. As med students, verbal change of shift sign-out information isn't always readily accessible to you unless you are present for sign-out. Additionally, make sure to read all of the notes from the day prior, which also might have information on interval events. This might include notes from consultants, the nursing team, speech, physical, or occupational therapy teams, social work, or case management. This is an incredibly helpful way to stay up to date on the most recent events from a broad, multidisciplinary perspective. Next, sift through your patient's vital signs. Keep in mind that in pediatrics, vital signs change greatly based on the age of your patient. Remember that because of these age-specific ranges, there are vital signs that can be abnormal that may not flag or alert as such. For example, a heart rate of 70 in a baby is very abnormal, but it might not flag in your EMR since this would be a normal adult heart rate. Vice versa, there are vital signs that are normal that might alert as critical. For example, a blood pressure of 80 over 50 might be normal for an infant, but might flag as hypotensive. Interpretation is key. It is helpful to keep a printed out copy of normal vital signs by age range in your pocket to have handy. Even residents do this. Next, make sure to look at your patient's ins and outs. We'll talk more about interpreting these later in our How to Present a Patient section. After going through overnight or interval events, vitals, ins and outs. Next, make sure to look through your patient's lab, microbiology, and radiology data if it's available. Having an idea of these results before you go see your patient can help you target what parts of the physical exam or questions you might want to ask the patient or family. 
Next, I recommend reviewing the medications that your patient is on and making note of how often they required any medications ordered PRN or as needed. All right, so you have all of your objective data, and now it's time to go see your patient. Make sure you're clear what the expectations are and if your resident needs to accompany you or if it's acceptable for you to see the patient on your own. Before you physically see your patient, I would strongly recommend checking in with their night nurse who can be so helpful in recapping important events that the doctor's team might not have been aware of. Just make sure that you aren't interrupting our nursing colleagues sign out to their own day team. Okay, now we're officially ready for the most exciting part, seeing our patient. Enter the room and state your role as the medical student. Remember when pre-rounding, these are patients already admitted to the hospital. This is not the time to redo the entire H&P. Instead, I encourage every student when outside the room to identify the two most important questions they want to ask the patient or caregiver and the two most important things they want to make sure that they do on the physical exam. Your interactions with patients early in the morning, usually at 6 a.m. after what was likely not a great night of sleep in the hospital, should be problem-focused. It is always okay and encouraged to come back again later in the day to ask further questions and start building a stronger relationship with the patient and family. For example, for a patient admitted with dehydration secondary to viral gastroenteritis, we would want to make sure we ask detailed questions about what their stool looked like, how much they vomited, and how much PO intake the parents felt like they were able to keep down. For their physical exam, we would likely want to make sure we did a good abdominal exam, as well as assess for signs of dehydration with evaluating mucous membranes, capillary refill, and skin turgor. This does not mean that we won't do the rest of the physical exam, but making it a point to identify the key elements beforehand will make sure that you don't forget to perform them in the room or to report them on rounds. In general, for each patient at minimum, you should make note of their general appearance, listen to the heart and lungs, do a basic abdominal exam, and make sure to examine any lines and drains that they might have. As a general rule of thumb, it's better to be more thorough than you anticipate is needed than to have an inadequate exam. We'll discuss this more in our How to Present a Patient section. After you finish pre-rounding, it's time to sit down and collect your thoughts, interpret your data, and formulate your assessment and plan. If you have time, beginning to prepare your note can be especially helpful in organizing your thoughts, and it's also an efficient way to make sure that your notes are done at a reasonable time. All right, you made it so far already through your first day. You just finished pre-rounding. Now let's move on to how to present a patient on the inpatient ward surface. All presentations should begin with a one-liner that includes the patient's age, gender, any relevant medical history or conditions, and their main problem that is keeping them in the hospital. For example, Thomas is a three-month-old male with a history of prematurity born at 31 weeks who is currently admitted with viral bronchiolitis due to his high-flow oxygen requirement and need for IV fluid repletion. At this point, you can move into our subjective portion, with interval and overnight events. When reporting significant clinical events, you should get into the habit of reporting the event itself, followed by any clinical intervention, followed by the patient's response. For example, let's say overnight our patient Thomas desatted to the low 80s several times. Reporting this event is helpful, but even better would be to report, Thomas had several desats to the low 80s during which he reportedly looked like he was working harder to breathe with worsened retractions. The night team got another chest x-ray, increased his high flow from 5 liters to 8 liters, which resulted in some improvement in his saturations and work of breathing. See how this paints a better picture? Think event, intervention, response. Next, you can go into more detail about any questions you may have asked the patient this morning. If there were truly not any significant interval events, it's okay to report no significant overnight events, but I generally recommend finding at least one clinical event or even patient or caregiver concern that you noted on subjective interview. 
after interval events, now we can report ins and outs. Ins and outs are variable, and some patients may require carefully logged eyes and nose, like our cardiac patients, versus others we may not log or follow to an exact amount. In general, eyes and nose should be reported in mils per kg, since volumes are difficult to interpret based on age and weight. This can seem intimidating at first, but I promise, we can do it together. First, let's talk about ins. This includes the fluid that the patient took enterally, or through the gut, either by mouth, by NG tube, or a G tube. INS should always be reported in mils per kg per day. Additionally, if the patient is a baby or if there is any nutritional concerns, it's important to note how many kcalories per kilo per day they received and what type of formula this was. These calculations are easier than they look and I promise get better with practice. I really recommend asking your resident on the first day to sit down and help you do these and you can compare your numbers the first few times. In addition to reporting total volume, calorie amounts, and formula types, sometimes it can also be important to note what portion of our ins were done by mouth instead of via an NG tube, or it can be important to report what portion of our ins were enteral nutrition versus what was given IV. So for example, remember our patient Thomas? We could say, Thomas was in at a total of 120 mils per cake per day. Enterally, he took 100 mils per cake per day of 20 kcal per ounce standard term formula. This equates to 66 kcals per kilo per day. He also received 20 mils per kg per day of IV fluids running at half maintenance rate. Now, calculations with a lot of unit cancellations are really difficult to walk through in a non-visual podcast, so I really recommend sitting down, trying them yourself, and then comparing with your resident on the first day. The best way to gain practice with these equations is really by sitting down and doing them. But to calculate mils per kg per day, Divide the total mLs that the patient took in by their weight. To obtain total caloric intake, multiply the amount they took in per day in mils per kg per day by the calories per ounce in their formula. Then, divide this total number by 30 to give you the appropriate kcals per kilo per day. Now, not every single one of our patients will need every single one of these calculations, so it's important to identify the main reason we're trending these values so we know what is most important to report. So for example, if Thomas is a three-month-old with viral bronchiolitis and dehydration, we're likely more concerned about his overall fluid status and ability to take PO than we are about his ability to gain weight or the exact amount of calories that he's taking in. For this reason, we could probably shorten his ins to say Thomas was in at a total of 120 mils per cake per day, 83% of which was PO, with the remainder being his IV fluids running at half maintenance rate. Now, in other cases, we don't always have exact numbers for ins, and we might just need to report the number of breastfeeding occurrences or the estimated percent of their meal that they took in. Now, let's talk about outs. Stool is generally measured in the number of occurrences, unless there's an ostomy present, in which case we can present this in mils per kg. Urine is the one exception to ins and outs where we don't report mils per kg per day, but instead report mils per kg per hour. If we're unable to log the exact urine amount, again, we would just report occurrences. Outs are also the section to report any episodes of emesis, as well as any output from drains. Don't forget when reporting ins and outs, you should also report weight here if this is relevant to your patient's active problems. Generally, if you have a newborn, you should probably be reporting their weight gain or weight loss each day. All right, let's move on to the rest of the objective data, starting with vitals. A good tip for the objective section in general is that when you're starting out on a new rotation with a new team or new attending, I recommend being thorough to demonstrate that you did an appropriate job of collecting all necessary information. 
It's better to show off a bit on the first go-around to build trust and then let your attending or resident guide you with their preferences about what you might be able to trim off. Again, try to determine the most important vital sign pertinent to your patient and be detailed for that and maybe condense the others a little bit. So for example, for our patient Thomas, who's here with viral bronchiolitis, we could report that he was afebrile with an appropriate heart rate and blood pressure and was satting above 95% on 8 liters of high flow at an FiO2 of 35%. For your exam data, present in an orderly fashion, starting with general appearance, and then moving on from there like you would with any other patient encounter. Try to emphasize the key portions that are relevant to their main problem and might influence your plan. So for example, for our patient Thomas here with viral bronchiolitis, we would want to make sure to give an in-depth description of their work of breathing and lung sounds, as well as their cap refill and hydration status, since this might influence what we do with our respiratory support or IV fluids. As the week goes on and you build trust with your team, you might be able to generalize some of the other less relevant portions, but for now, stick with a full and complete description on day one. So for example, on day one, you might report that Thomas has an abdomen that's soft, non-tender, and non-distended, but by day seven with the same patient and the same team, you might be able to report that his abdominal exam was unremarkable or unchanged only after you have shown us that you know how to report normal. Next, we can move on to presenting labs, microbiology, and radiology. Now for labs, it's really helpful to note trends. For example, reporting that a CRP is downtrended from 8.5 yesterday to one today is way more helpful than just giving us an absolute value. Try to identify ahead of time what the most pertinent lab values for your patient are and focus your time on those ones. Now, much like vital signs, normal lab values can be very different for children versus adults. So make sure you aren't just reporting a number just because it's flagged or highlighted. And likewise, don't assume that just because a value isn't highlighted or flagged that it's normal. One common area I see students make this mistake is with white blood cell count, hemoglobin, bilirubin, and creatinine, which can really vary a lot based on the patient's age, especially in the newborn period. Now for microbiology, reporting culture data is important and specifying at what growth times these reflect. So for example, Thomas's blood culture is negative at 48 hours is a little bit more helpful on our planning than just saying Thomas's blood culture is negative. For radiology reports, it's okay to read the complicated reports verbatim, but make sure you know the significance and meaning of the report. Additionally, it's a good habit to always open chest x-rays and review the images yourself, first for learning purposes, but also because you may get asked to look at the image on rounds. Now, for MRIs and CTs, those are another story. We can save those for your radiology rotation. One common mistake I see students make when presenting their objective section is by skipping ahead to their assessment and plan. For example, it's okay to interpret trends by saying that a patient's CRP has downtrended from 8.5 to 1, but don't skip too far ahead by saying something like, their CRP has downtrended from 8.5 to 1 and their blood culture is negative, so I think we can stop antibiotics. This should really be saved for your assessment, reasoning, and plan. It can feel strange at first to be listing numbers and data and holding in our next logical thoughts and plans, but really part of third year is training your brain to communicate and receive information in the standardized way. I promise it will feel more natural with the more practice you get. Let's move on to your assessment and plan. Your assessment should again start with a one-liner, but remember, this one-liner should likely be different from your opening one-liner because you are interpreting and incorporating the data you presented. So for our example patient, remember our opening one-liner? Let me read it again. Thomas is a three-month-old male with a history of prematurity born at 31 weeks, who is currently admitted with viral bronchiolitis due to his high-flow oxygen requirement and need for IV fluids. Now, let's turn this into a new assessment one-liner. 
a good opening one-liner for assessment will again include their age, gender, relevant medical history, and principal hospital problem. But now it should also include some assessment on their overall progress, stability, or clinical trajectory. So for example, let's make this an assessment one-liner. Thomas is a three-month-old male with a history of prematurity admitted with viral bronchiolitis who has overall been worsening from a respiratory perspective over the past 24 hours, requiring increasing amounts of respiratory support. This paints a better picture about his clinical evolution and how he has been responding to our interventions. It also sets the stage for the next parts of our assessment and ultimately the plan. Your plan should be organized by problem or by body system. Ask your team ahead of time what method they prefer and try to be consistent. Now, don't worry about presenting the wrong plan. Take your best shot at it. Remember that a careful assessment, that's really where the meat of our presentation is. This is sort of the show your work section of the math problem. It proves to me as the resident that you know how to tie together relevant information, interpret that information, and give a differential diagnosis, all while showing me your careful thought process. Now, I would much rather have a student give me an excellent assessment and an incorrect plan, then have a student give me an incomplete assessment, but a completely correct plan. A good plan, whether correct or not, will be phrased in a clear and firm list of action items, not as a question. So for example, instead of saying, I'm not sure if we should try weaning his high flow, try suggesting, let's wean his high flow from eight liters to seven liters, and then I can come back and assess how his work of breathing looks after that. I know it can feel scary, but really try your best to put your money down. When giving a presentation, well, presentation is everything. Make sure you aren't reading directly from your paper the entire time. Try to make eye contact with the team members and even the patient or caregivers, especially during your assessment portion. All right, guys, you did it. We're almost through your first day on the wards. Let's skip next to my favorite topic, how to be an effective team member. Now, life on the inpatient service can be very challenging. The hours are long, much time is spent on your feet rounding, we're constantly interacting with many new team members, and then to add to that, we generally take care of very sick children and meet families on what is some of the toughest and most emotional days of their lives. In this kind of environment, learning how to be an effective team member is key, and it will set you so far apart from other students. In the mornings, try to make sure you make a concerted effort to touch base with the resident to run through your assessment and plan. Instead of asking the resident, hey, what's the plan? Instead, propose your own thoughts first. A good resident will do their best to make sure you feel prepared for rounds, but it is your responsibility to show the initiative and be the one to seek out your resident in the morning. Another piece of advice is to always be honest and direct. If you didn't do a particular exam maneuver or ask a specific question, that is okay. It's better to simply say, no, I didn't do that, instead of making up an answer or beating around the bush. Answers like that can erode trust that can be really difficult to regain. On rounds, make sure you are engaged in listening to all presentations, not just your own. After rounds are over, the team will tackle tasks. Usually this is organized by a process called running the list, a time where team members sit down and assign specific action items to one another to achieve throughout the day. Keep eyes out for pending labs, offer to call or touch base with consultants, and revisit and re-examine your patient to give the latest updates on your interventions made during rounds. Also, make sure to ask your residents what time they prefer notes to be finished by and ask for feedback on your notes. Now, feedback on the wards can come in all sorts of forms. Make sure you're reviewing any changes made to your note by the resident or the attending by checking it the morning after. Also, make sure to take note of any follow-up questions or clarifications that are asked after you give a presentation. These can be more indirect forms of feedback and things to make note of for the next time you give a presentation. With regards to feedback, I recommend two things. Ask for it early and ask for it often. 
When you ask for feedback early, not only are you asking for feedback, but more so, you're telling the resident and the attending that the door is open, you want to improve, and you want their help and support. Acting this way, also for you, will just make feedback in the future be received as more as an investment in you becoming a growing professional than it will feel like a critique on you as a person. Likewise, ask for feedback often. Now, Feedback doesn't always have to be a huge sit-down conversation that takes up plenty of time. Sometimes the most effective feedback can be very simple and problem-focused. So for example, this could look like asking your resident, hey, would you mind listening really closely to the presentation I give today? And could you tell me just one thing that I'm doing well that I should keep on doing, and then one thing that I should keep working on and I can try to improve for tomorrow? Feedback like this is so great because it's quick, it's easy, and it's most of all actionable. And on that note, I hope you feel even just a little bit more ready for your first day on the wards. I hope you enjoy the immersive learning experience that the wards really is. And I'm so excited for you to realize how even as a medical student, you truly can make some huge and important differences in the care that our pediatric patients receive. Good luck and welcome to the wards. Thanks for listening to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics. I hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below and rate the podcast.